This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. But it can be really daunting to consider how to create a God-honoring and successful career for yourself when you're just starting out in the workforce or if you're trying to get back into it either after years on the sidelines or maybe after losing your job during the pandemic. What kinds of biblical principles and practical advice should we follow in order to create a work life that matters? That's what we're going to talk about today with Fred Sievert. He is the former president of New York Life Insurance Company and author of the book we'll be discussing. It's called Fast Tracking a Career of Consequence, Practical Christ-Centered Advice for Entering or Re-Entering the Workforce. And Mr. Sievert, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Janet. Pleasure to join you. Thank you. You say this book came about because of your daughter and some of the struggles with her career. What happened to kind of kick off this book? Yeah, my daughter uh, had just graduated from Calvin College in Michigan, and she was a French major. And she it was at a time when the job market was very tough. She found a job kind of in the marketing department fulfilling marketing orders. And she came to me after three or four months and said, Dad, you know, I just... I just need some advice on how to really start a start a career here and get noticed. And she said, "Can you give me some tips?" So I, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about that, praying about that, uh, asking myself how I, as a president of a big company, would notice someone deep down in the organization. And I, I came up with five tips that I I talked to her about. She implemented them, and she did extremely well. Uh, she would have done well anyway, smart kid, good, strong Christian, but she she did extremely well. And I ended up using those tips again in four commencement addresses that I was honored to deliver. And I heard later from many of the people who were in the audience that the, the tips worked for them. Great. Uh, and as a result, a couple of years later, uh, an article of mine was published in uh, Market Watch, the Wall Street Journal website, and it was about one of those five tips, and my agent just happened to read it, and he called me and said, you know, Fred, you've got another book here. (laughs) And and I said to him, well, you know, he he said, do a book on business with these kinds of tips, and I said, but wait a minute, you know, I don't write a book without talking about my faith, and he said, well... (laughs) Of course, it's in your DNA. I expect that. So that was the genesis of it. That is so neat. And it, and what good timing. I mean, it's not such a great time, but good timing to be addressing this issue because you have so many people who are really struggling having lost jobs or even family businesses during the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, th- this is so important. What do you say about the challenges that some people are facing now just having a job? Yeah, well, I I mean, I just want to comment on the timing, because I I really view the timing as providential. When I first wrote the book, started to write the book, I was thinking about, you know, uh, college kids getting off to work and uh, adults coming off child-rearing years, veterans coming back from military service. This was before the pandemic even hit. Mm. 
And so I ended up putting re-entering the workforce uh, for the college, uh, the uh, child rearing and veterans, and all of a sudden, uh, millions of people were are now subject to uh, layoffs or even reimagining their future. And so, uh, like I say, I view it as very providential that the timing is very very relevant right now. Yeah, it really is. Well, one of the things that you advise people to do is take assessment of their spiritual gifts. And that's kind of interesting. When you think about spiritual gifts, you normally think about using those in the context of your church. But how do you go about making that assessment of your gifts? Basically, for somebody who is maybe a new worker, somebody who's just a college graduate getting started, uh, but that also might apply to people who've been on the sidelines for quite a while. How do you find out what your gifts really are? Yeah, well, you know, I personally had a good feel for what my spiritual gifts were over the years because it were the things that I were I was really good at, the things that uh, you know, made me feel fulfilled, things that I knew were were helping to serve the Lord. But another way that many many churches will approach this issue is through a a spiritual assessment tool. Mm-hmm. And in this book, I got permission from the the writer of one of the original spiritual assessment tools to put it in Appendix A. So right up front, Chapter 1, I'm telling people I really would like you to take the time to take that assessment tool and identify three or four of your own uh, spiritual gifts. And then think about, this is the important part, is think about how you might apply those in the workplace. And I give them, right in Chapter 1, three examples of how I applied them in the work in the workforce and in many cases uh, Janet you don't you don't always see it you know it's something that the Holy Spirit is nudging you to do and you don't sometimes realize until in hindsight that you know this was a perfect application of what, what I know are my spiritual gifts right what would you say your spiritual gifts are and how did they work in your job yeah I well, I always had a financial acumen, and I viewed one of my spiritual gifts really was leadership. I mean, every board I've ever been on has asked me to be the chairman of the board. I don't always agree to do it, but, you know, I view leadership using my financial uh, acumen mm-hmm. as something very important. Secondly, uh, the second spiritual gift that I think I possess, I know I possess, is a very strong faith. And and there's a whole story behind that that I tell in the very first chapter of the first book I wrote called God Revealed. And I won't get into it all now, we don't have time, but basically it was an adolescent experience I had, an encounter with God when I really hadn't been raised in a uh, worshiping Christian family. (laughs) So I, I think my testimony actually is strengthened because here, here I was a top executive. I wasn't raised in a in a worshiping Christian family, uh, and in fact, I'm I'm really a left brain kind of guy. You know, I've, I'm an actuary and I have a degrees in mathematics and statistics. But you know, even with all those things kind of operating in favor of science versus religion. You know, here I came to know the Lord kind of through that original experience where I felt very much felt in God's presence and that he was speaking to me. I didn't hear a voice. I didn't see a vision. But I really uh, was was sort of contemplating some some what I didn't know were, 
you know, profound spiritual questions, but then feeling instantly that I was in God's presence and that he was holding me in his hands and saying, Fred, you know, I am real. I am with you. I will always be with you. And the answers to your questions will come in time. And, and then when I went off the Divinity School, by the way, to complete the story, you know, uh, at age 59, I, I went off to Divinity School, and I'm taking a medieval theology class, and I'm reading St. Augustine's Confession. Oh, yeah. He had two, he had the same, almost the identical experience I had, uh, and he had it twice, I had it twice, I couldn't repeat it again, he couldn't repeat it again, but I, it was almost like... God was speaking to me over 17 centuries, and I really came to the conclusion that I was given that strong faith, you know, as someone who would be led to Christ and would serve Christ in the future. And I actually heard a very similar story from several uh, preachers and lay leaders who had had a very similar experience. And the the third one I'll mention is is a gift uh, of generosity. I grew up in a lower income middle. Uh, I'd say lower middle income family, both parents worked two jobs. Um, and I, I just had an appreciation for people who were less fortunate. And I, I think it just it just produced a real gift of generosity and giving back to uh, the church, both financially and in terms of my time. Right. So when you take stock of what you're good at, you know, in terms of what you've said, financial acumen and leadership and a strong faith in Christ and also being very interested in being generous with others, these are the kinds of things that other Christians can do to take stock of what they're good at and what their interests are so they can determine what they should do as far as a career. There's a lot more to talk about, though. We'll take a short break and be back with Fred Sievert. Fast starting a Career of Consequence is his book. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. When Julia ended a bad relationship, she found out she was pregnant. After the father told her to get an abortion, this mom was confused and didn't know what to do or who to talk to. I just knew that if I got an abortion, a part of me would be broken. Julia was referred to a preborn center where she was counseled and supported with the strength that she needed to choose life. I couldn't imagine my life without him. Because of them, he's here. We're going to get through it and it's going to be okay. Preborn centers provide hope, love, free ultrasounds, and the gospel of Jesus Christ to moms like Julia. Preborn truly is the alternative to Planned Parenthood. Will you join Preborn in helping love and support young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, 855-402-2229, or there's a Preborn banner to to click at JanetMefford.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a healthcare program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through May 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 
per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families, offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Thanks so much for being with us. We are joined by Fred Sievert, and we are really excited that he's here to talk about some of these issues pertaining to the workplace. He is the former president of New York Life Insurance Company. His book is called Fast Starting a Career of Consequence, Practical Christ-Centered Advice for Entering or Re-Entering the Workforce. We were talking, Mr. Sievert, before we went to the break about some of the gifts that you have to take stock of, what you're good at. This is, of course, an important part of determining which way your career is going. But as far as your fast start tips, I thought so many of these were just great. One of the ones you mentioned is demonstrating commitment. And I just, I said, amen to everything I was reading that you were writing about things like a strong work ethic and arriving early and embracing, you know, the company's vision and mission. Can you talk a little bit about what it means to be committed to your job and especially as a Christian, how your values need to inform that? Yeah, sure. The, uh, one of the one of the interesting things the lead in verse to that chapter is uh, Colossians three twenty three, which is whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. And when I wrote the book, my editor came back to me after she finished going through a couple of times. She said, "You know, Fred, you've got that verse in here three times." <laughs> and I said to her, "You know what? That's intentional. I was. <laughs> That's how important it is." Yeah. And, you know, I think, yeah, the, when I first gave the tip to my daughter, I said to her, look, just, you know, the one thing you could do that would have a huge impact is just arrive early and leave late from work. You know, 15, 20 minutes, because yeah. today these young people are, are working as if they're punching a time clock, you know, and they're yep. keep r- rushing out the door as soon as the workday is over. But, you know, ultimately we started talking about a, l- a lot more other things like completing projects on time and within budget taking on difficult tasks with enthusiasm, delivering on your promises. And, you know, all of it has Christian aspects to it, especially the one that we always talk about together is act with integrity, honesty, and accountability. Uh, I mean, I think the one thing you find that's most common among uh, uh, successful business people as well as uh, spiritual leaders is the existence of a strong integrity. Yes, absolutely. What about the issue? I'm just curious for your take on this. One of the things we tell our kids is, you know, don't go into a job thinking, I'm so smart, I ought to be at the top of the management scale by now. You know, be willing to work your way up, be willing to take that low position. And if you do it well, that's what causes you to move up. Do you have any remarks to make regarding the patience that you should have as a new employee at a company if you want to work work your way up, start at the bottom and do it well in order to work your way there. Don't just walk in like, I'm smarter than you all are, you know, I want to be the CEO. You know, I I have a graduate degree. Make me CEO. It doesn't work that way, does it? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. In fact, uh, if anything, I think it hurts. It hurts individuals who come in with that kind of an attitude. Um, I I mentioned in the book several places, and there's, there's half of a chapter on you know, the death knell of arrogance. And uh, mm-hmm. appearing arrogance, arrogant is one of the worst things 
that that you can do as a new employee. And I, I've actually coached people on on how to avoid that. But then also, once you have that uh, that that impression or perception that that others have of you, how to begin to change that. But yeah, I. The book has a lot of uh, cautionary advice, uh, much along the lines of what you just said. Uh, another thing I'll mention, uh, Janet, is we're coming out with a workbook. And, and I think the workbook, it's probably going to be published in a, in a couple of months, is really going to give people the ability to kind of track their progress along uh, the tips of the path of the tips that I'm giving them. And um, that also has each chapter ends not only with a sample prayer, but also uh, with cautionary advice. So I think you're absolutely right. You can't come in expecting to change everything right away and get promoted into senior officer level positions. I, I particularly note that in in uh, Chapter 5, which is actually one of the biblical principle chapters on applying the golden rule with, yes. with employees and customers, because uh, you know I thought to myself as I went through that chapter and gave advice on that, it really related a lot to how the company is perceived by its customers and its employees. And the cautionary advice there was, look, don't come in with a list. I I give, by the way, I give a lot of ways in which someone can better understand those relationships, how the company deals with its customers, and what to look for. But I say, look, you don't want to come in with your list of 20 changes that you need to make as a new employee. I mean, it's just going to turn people off. And you you may say something that opposes, you know, the view of your direct supervisor. So, yeah, you do need to be more patient. But I think the kind of tips I'm giving and the cautionary advice I'm giving in the book allows people to to time it appropriately and be more patient and not come in thinking they're going to get promotion after promotion. Yeah, that's good. Well, when you were talking about applying the golden rule, that's always good advice. But I I really appreciate that you brought up today's lack of personalized customer service being one of the advantages for Christians. You can really shine in this area. And I certainly could go on for about an hour about bad customer service. I think we all could. We all can. Yeah, Yeah, it's, it's not a good scene out there. What do you say to Christians who are entering the workforce about how to apply the golden rule when you are dealing with customers and what kind of difference that can make for the company and for your career. Yeah, well, you know, the golden rule is pretty obvious the, the way it's stated. You know, treat others the way you'd want to be treated yourself. In fact, you know, it was actually stated by Christ in, in Luke 6.31 and again in Matthew. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a very important concept. And, you know, I, I recommend people to, as they try to understand what's happening in their company, is to, to become a customer and, and to, to listen to customer service. You know, make customer service calls, send emails through uh, to the website, and, and become someone who's actually observing what's happening at the company and how they're treating their customers. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I'm sure you've, you've, you've done it yourself. You know, you see a TV commercial, or you see, you know, you you go into a website and you're trying to figure out how to do something. And you say nobody in authority could have possibly even looked at this. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> right. It's just so bad. It's yeah. so yeah. inappropriate. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think you got to observe it. You got to observe interactions among employees and their superiors because the, you know that 
element of the golden rule is very important, too, how you treat your subordinates, how you are treated by your superiors, and other stakeholders, yeah. uh, you know, vendors and, and companies that uh, you are clients to your company. Yeah. Um, and it, all these rules, you know, somebody said to me, well, what if I'm an entrepreneur? And I said, you know what? This, I, I wrote it from the perspective of a big company executive, but as I went through it, I was always conscious of the fact that this can apply to a very small business as well. Sure. Uh, you know, almost everything I write about in the book. Yeah, you're right about that. Well, a- another thing that you have touched on is the issue of integrity, and you also expand upon that and talk about earning trust. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're talking about there? When you're working as a low-level, you know, marketing uh, assistant or something like that, how do you go about developing integrity and earning trust within your workplace, with your colleagues, with your customers? And and why is that so important, do you think, for the for the rest of your career? Sure. Uh, you know, part of, part of the issue, and I found this to be the case throughout my career, is once you lose so lose the trust of other people, you, it's almost impossible to regain. And and some of the ways that you do uh, earn that trust is you know you praise the work of others. You you avoid complaining or gossiping because you know you could be, gossiping is so easy for people to do, but when you do that, the person you gossip to about somebody else is going to wonder if you aren't gossiping about them yep. to somebody else. Yes. You know, and also I always give people the benefit of the doubt, and I demonstrate a trust in others until they they prove that they can't be trusted. Um, and even, even I mentioned in the book, even avoid displaying negative body language. I mean, body language... Can, can really produce a distrust and can communicate messages that you're not even aware of. Right. But just by how you, your facial expressions, even how you move your eyebrows and how you fold your hands across your legs. And, you know, if you treat other coworkers with respect and dignity, uh, they're going to trust you. And another thing, I, I just filled out a questionnaire to CEOs today, and he was asking me about... Uh, questions like this, and I said, you know, be humble. Be humble and occasionally self-deprecating. Mm. Give credit and take blame. Mm. I mean, those are, you know, even sometimes when somebody isn't, if you feel yourself that you 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 deserve a lot of credit for something, share it with others. Give the credit to your coworkers and your subordinates, and and take the blame when things go wrong. If you're at the top or you've got a small, even if it's a small team, you know, take it upon yourself. What did I do wrong? Mm-hmm. What could I change? That kind of an attitude is going to build trust. Not only build trust, but as you're talking like this, I'm thinking to myself, boy, I bet you were a good boss because I I have had bosses before where they did the exact opposite. They just wanted to kick the puppy every time they came into the office in the morning. They didn't want to give credit to any of their underlings because they felt maybe a little bit competitive. You know, these kinds of people are, are very rife, I would say, in a lot of corporate culture. But what you're saying, that not only builds trust, it also helps the whole culture. Especially yeah. if a boss is doing that, giving credit where credit is due, being proud of the team, being self-deprecating, that becomes kind of uh, something that spreads in a good way throughout sure. the company. If, sure. if you have Christians doing that, that's fantastic. Janet, can I, can I just say one thing about uh, getting my book? We're, we're having this interview early because... 
the book is only on pre-order uh, at Amazon.com, and it'll take a couple of months or more to get it. What the, my publisher felt so good about the timely, timeliness and relevance of this book that they actually did an early print run for me so that I could put it up on my website. Great. Very good. Well, the name of the book, Fast Starting a Career of Consequence, storiesofgodsgrace.com is the website. Fred Sievert with us. So good to talk to you, Mr. Sievert. Thanks a lot for being here. Janet, thank you. Okay. God bless. God bless you too. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, I don't know if you saw this Washington Post article this week, E.J. Dion Jr. wrote this, Biden is rolling back the culture war. The country should thank him. And I read that headline and I read through this very confusing opinion piece. It was all over the map. I don't even know exactly what his point was other than to try to drive home this point that Joe Biden is just awesome and he's rolling back the culture war. He's not rolling back the culture war. I just I can't even imagine how anybody could try to put together an argument that anybody would buy that he's not engaging in the culture wars. I guess maybe if you're a leftist and you believe that in order to stop the culture wars, you just drive over your enemies and just make them accept what you want and you don't even give them a place at the table. Maybe that's what it means to roll back the culture wars from the perspective of the Bezos-owned Washington Post. Who knows? But here's an example of how Joe Biden is not rolling back the culture war. He's accelerating it. You might have heard that he has now put out these executive orders. He's Mr. Executive Order. He's completely out of control with the executive orders. I don't even know why we have a Congress anymore. I mean, maybe that's a side issue we can talk about. Just get rid of the legislative branch and just let this one guy come into office, move into the White House and by decree decide everything that the country has to do under federal law and just skip it and get rid of the courts, too, because if you're going to pack the courts with leftists, what's the point of even having the courts? Let's just go full king. Just let's have a king. Let's have a dictator. Let's just get it over with. Forget the preliminaries. Why in the world are we pretending that we have some sort of checks and balances in this country? I'm sorry, I'm being a little bit facetious, but it does feel that way. So these two executive orders, this is from the White House website. President Biden signs these executive orders establishing the White House Gender Policy Council and ensuring education free from sexual violence. Okay, on the second point, might I just say, how in the world is the White House going to get rid of sexual violence? I mean, seriously, how are you going to do that unless you're somehow able to do something new to the human heart. Only Jesus Christ can do that. So this is what they say about establishing the Gender Policy Council. It formally establishes this council within the executive office of the president with a role in both domestic and foreign policy development. The council will work in coordination with the existing policy councils to advance gender equity, there's that word again, and equality, including, this is just awesome, Combating systemic bias and discrimination, including sexual harassment. What does that mean? 
Increasing economic security and opportunity by addressing the structural barriers to women's participation in the labor force. What does that mean? Decreasing wage and wealth gaps. What does that mean? And addressing the caregiving needs of American families and supporting care workers, predominantly low paid women of color. I don't know what that means. I really what, what, specifically what, what are you doing? And then they also talk about ensuring access to comprehensive health care and preventing and responding to gender based violence. How is the White House going to prevent gender based violence? I, I'm really trying to be practical here. What in the world is this all about? This is just nonsense because there's nothing that they can do to prevent gender-based violence. Going back to the days of, you know, the OJ trial and all the discussions people had about domestic violence and abuse and all the rest and and all this talk about restraining orders came up. If you have a man who threatens you, just take out a restraining order. Then it came out that, in fact, if you take out a restraining order, that may be the dumbest thing you could do as a woman because they can't really do anything to the guy until he commits a crime. So the restraining order sometimes just makes your stalker more mad. I mean, Joe Biden's going to magically fly in and somehow fix all this. I'm not really sure what he thinks he can do. He also wants to promote equity and opportunity in education and leadership. That's nice and vague. And my favorite, advancing gender equality globally through diplomacy, development, trade and defense. And by recognizing the needs and roles of women and girls in conflict prevention, peace building, democratic rights, respecting governance, global health and humanitarian crises and development assistance. Fantastic. It all means a big zero, nothing. I don't even know what any of this means. The White House Gender Policy Council will be an essential part of the Biden-Harris administration's plan to ensure we build a more equal and just society. Maybe I'm crazy, but don't we all have equality under the law? I mean, now they're on to the point in human history where they want to have special rights. This has been going on for the LGBTQ plus community. Special rights. They want special rights. That's what the Equality Act is about. It's not about equality. It's the Special Rights Act is what it is. It's the In Your Face Christians Act. Maybe they should be naming it something like that because that would be more accurate. Now, the co-chair of this council, Jennifer Klein, said in a White House briefing, we are very inclusive in our definition of gender. We intend to address all sorts of discrimination and fight for equal rights for people, whether that's LGBTQ plus people, women, girls, men. Might I point out something a little bit inconvenient? I I appreciated what the Daily Signal put out on Twitter. They said President Biden signing these two executive orders on gender equity and Title IX policies. Uh, Here's a reminder why these policies are actually harmful to women and don't promote equality. Now, what you're going to hear is a little montage talking about this case that's been ongoing with these young girls, these athletes who are being discriminated against because they're allowing boys who believe they're girls to compete in women's sports. And of course, the women are getting trampled on because the men are bigger and the men are stronger and the men are faster. Listen to this Daily Signal montage. This is this is a good point. Got one. A transgender high school athlete who is biologically a male took first place in both the 100 and 200 meter dash at Connecticut's girls track and field state championships. When I'm at the start of the race, when I'm lining up and getting into my blocks, everyone already knows the outcome. Those two athletes are going to come one and two and everyone knows it. The Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference, the CIAC, says that athletes can choose to compete for the sport in which they gender identify with. No one thinks it's fair. 
because we all know that males are physically stronger than females and they compete at a higher level. Petitions are circulating in Plainville and Glastonbury after two trans girls swept the competition at the state track and field championships. From third on, it's a little different. We're actually fighting for those spots, but in those meets, there's no way that one of us biological girls will be able to outrun those transgender athletes. They lost me at the phrase in which they gender identify with. Blah, what a grammatical nightmare. In addition to being a biological nightmare. It's crazy. The Federalist points out that this order for the Gender Policy Council mandates this creation of this group disguising issues such as promoting access to abortions and pushing gender and race-driven agendas as a way to advance gender equity and equality, blah, blah, blah. So, so much for the culture wars, right? They're completely over. Oh, yes, and then the second one, the second executive order coming down from President Biden, uh, it is to direct the Department of Education to review all of its existing regulations, orders, guidance, and policies to ensure consistency with the Biden-Harris administration's policy that students be guaranteed education free from sexual violence. Well, what are they talking about. It directs the Ed Department, the Department of Education, to specifically evaluate the Title IX regulation issued under the previous administration and then take action in accordance with the Biden-Harris administration, blah, blah, blah. Basically, what they're doing, as they point out, is Biden is instructing the Department of Education to go back to the Trump administration's uh, and specifically former Education Secretary Betsy DeVos's due process expansions on college campuses. This was all about giving students accused of sexual misconduct a chance to receive a fair trial and investigation and evaluation. So the president, as the Federalist says, hopes to reinstate at least some Obama-era policies that overhaul Title IX and potentially withhold or cut funding from schools that don't comply with broader sexual harassment definitions and lowered evidence standards for victims, as he previously promised on the campaign trail. This is not a good development. I'm sorry, but if we are a nation that believes in due process, then we should absolutely believe in due process for any boy on a campus who is accused of some kind of sexual crime or harassment allegation. He should have a fair trial. And that wasn't the case previously. And the Trump administration was trying to make sure that both sides were treated fairly. It wasn't something that was working against real victims. It was a way of saying we need to make sure that nobody gets railroaded because that has happened. And so... I don't know how this is rolling back the culture wars. Maybe I'm missing something, but I I just think that Joe Biden is advancing the culture wars. One executive order at a time. We're going to come back. There's more to come here on Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. We're partnering with Bible League International on Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa. In many parts of countries like Kenya, Tanzania, and Mozambique, nine of 10 Christians are denied God's word by corrupt governments and majority religions. They've never been able to read 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares on him for he cares for you. Reading that promise of God means everything to you and me. And now it will mean so much to these bible Christians in Africa when you respond. Here's Pastor Abel. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. 
$25 sends one Bible, $100 sends 20, and a limited time match will double your gift and help us meet our goal of sending 1,500 Bibles to Africa. Please call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, or there's an Open the Floodgates banner at JanetMefford.com. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. By the way, when we're talking about the culture wars, I did get a kick out of the pro-life evangelicals for Biden crowd, these leftists who are trying to convince everybody before the election, if you're really pro-life, you'll go for Joe Biden. And I'm looking at this page where they're putting up, ah, they're putting up quotes here, quoting Lindsey Graham, Joe Biden is as good a man as God ever created. Hope not. Uh, Joe Biden is humble and kind from other people. Joe Biden tells the truth. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, the plagiarist. You can count on him to tell the truth. Oh, and he is a patriot, too. Yes, he's a patriot. He does what he says. His word is his bond. And this guy is practically perfect, according to the evangelicals for Biden. Oh, but wait a minute. They just came out with a statement. (laughs) This is the thing I get a kick out of. We are very disappointed about the COVID-19 relief package's exclusion of the Hyde Amendment, a long-standing bipartisan policy that prevents taxpayer funding for abortion. We're even more upset that the Biden administration is supporting this bill. I mean, pardon me for cracking up, but are you people the last people on the planet to put two and two together? You didn't know what his position was on abortion? He's a radical pro-abortion supporter. What did you think he was going to do? What did you think he was going to implement when he got into office. This is the guy who has said he wanted to codify Roe v. Wade in federal law. And these leftists, well, you know, this is, I'm telling you people, this is what I have been complaining about ever since that Evangelicals for Life conference first got started thanks to Russell Moore in in, in Washington, D.C. And he picked up this old Ron Sider line. And by the way, Ron Sider is one of these pro-life evangelicals for Biden, that we need to be holistically pro-life. No, actually, we need to be pro-life. If we're pro-life, we care about the baby in the womb, we care about the life of the child in utero, then we will care about all the other lives too. It's it's really something that they're putting out there that has never been a problem. You have never had a problem, in, in my experience, and I did a lot of pro-life activism way back when, uh, before motherhood, but pro-lifers have always cared about everybody's lives. We're Christians and, and pro-life activists who even aren't Christians care about human life. If you care about life in the womb, you're going to care about life outside the womb. And the leftists forever have been trying to insinuate that pro-lifers only care about the baby. Well, they don't usually call it a baby. The fetus. 
the zygotes. They only care about zygotes. They don't care about women afterwards. Really? Well, go down to your local crisis pregnancy center and check it out because Christians do care and pro-lifers do care about every life. So good job, guys. (laughs) Welcome to reality, pro-life evangelicals for Biden. I'm just banging my head against a wall, metaphorically. It's just amazing. So that's one aspect of this. Then you have this very interesting article in Town Hall. I don't know if you read this, but Kurt Schlichter, who I've interviewed before, nice guy, good conservative, but he he, uh, wrote this article called The GOP is Not Going to Divide Over Gay Republicans. And basically what he's saying in this entire article is, you know, you can't cancel people out of the GOP who believe in gay marriage. We need to have a big tent. We need to have people who are supportive of gay marriage. We need to have gay Republicans as long as they're right about who knows what. Uh, we need to have gay Republicans. We need to have straight Republicans. And we need to all come together and win elections. Now, my reaction to this is I don't know how I can put this any plainer than I've been putting it for the last several years. What you're really doing here, and I I would never say that somebody is not allowed to vote for whoever they want to. People clearly can vote for whoever they want to. But the problem is when you see how the polling is going, it's obvious in the last several years that the GOP is going more and more pro-LGBT because that's what's going to happen. It's like the issue of electing LGBT politicians. Most of them are going to be activists. That's why they ran in the first place. It's a very important self-identifying issue for them. And they always turn out to be activists. Anise Parker in Houston and Pete Buttigieg and, you know, all these people have been activists or Richard slash Rachel Levine, uh, this this Pennsylvania health person uh, in the long blonde hair who was a man before he decided he wanted to be a woman, a big activist, big LGBT activist. So what does that portend for the GOP in the long run when you begin to say, yeah, if you believe in gay marriage, come on over. There's a fine line between saying anybody can vote for this who wants to. And we all agree with that. We all believe in a a, a broad civic reality in which people are free to do and vote for who they want to. What I'm saying, though, is the danger is you will begin to change even more so the GOP when you begin to say it doesn't matter. It will matter. It will matter tremendously. It's already changing. You've already had a lot of change and it's eroding the moral basis upon which I think historically the GOP in most of my lifetime has agreed being pro-marriage and meaning one man and one woman and holding the nuclear family. Now it becomes awkward if you start getting people, for example, working in the GOP, which they're free to do. Now you're introducing new concepts about, well, in my case, I'm a man married to a man and we have three adopted children and whatnot. And people don't want to be mean and people don't want to be unkind and they shouldn't be mean or unkind. But it changes kind of what's going on in the room, which in turn can change policies. I'm just saying that's that's a reality, too, that's not often discussed. And it kind of bugs me because I wish that Christians many years ago would have put more might behind this issue, not not to be mean or hateful to anybody, but to say, listen, we need to be a society upholding the centrality of the nuclear family as the building block of society, understanding that not every family is a mom, dad, and three kids or four kids, but understanding that God created the male and female, God created the covenant of marriage, and we ought to honor that. It's the best thing for the kids, and ultimately it's the best thing for society, and we shouldn't be inventing new forms of marriage and going along and saying, well, what's the big deal? I think in the long run, it will be a big deal. 
And I think that, unfortunately, uh, we will get to the point, unless God intervenes, where you're not going to see that big of a difference between the GOP and the Democrats on the issue of LGBT issues. And, And what's weird to me, the timing of this, is it's coming at the very time when the left is just putting its fangs out on the LGBT issue and going after the transgender issue and the Equality Act and trying to stomp on Christians and religious freedom in the name of LGBTQ plus rights. I mean, what direction is the GOP going to go? There have been some good things that have gone on in terms of legislation. This is good. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem now is going to be signing this bill banning transgender they're boys from female sports, and lots of people are getting mad at her. And also, you have House Representative Mary Miller introducing a bill to protect women and girls from the Democrats' radical gender ideology. This is via CNS News. This is a first-term congresswoman who introduced the Safety and Opportunity for Girls Act, and it now has 21 sponsors, which would define sex in federal law as a person's biological sex, not gender identity. I fully support that, and that's great. But understand that if you say, you know, we're fine with having all kinds of, you know, people in the big tent, understand that what happens when you become very too much pro big tent, your tent begins to change. And as long as you're okay with that, then that's fine. If you don't have a problem with people having that position on gay marriage or gay issues, not just the transgender issue, but the homosexuality issue. On the one hand, you bring people in. On the other hand, you get people exiting. And I don't know if that's really been considered, because I do believe there is still a a very large group of Christians who will say, if you start going more in that direction of pro-LGBT, I can't vote for the GOP. I can't. I mean, it's kind of for a lot of Christians, um, and I would include myself in this, you know, moral issues matter. Moral issues matter tremendously because they matter to the Lord and we have to obey him. So it's going to be interesting to see. What comes of that? By the way, got to throw this in. Did you hear about this new CDC guidance on vaccinated people and what they could do as far as visiting? We're going to squeeze this in. This is cut to a shot of optimism from the CDC guidance that all of those who are fully vaccinated have been waiting for. They can now gather with other fully vaccinated people indoors without masks or social distancing and visit unvaccinated people in a single household who are not considered to be high risk for COVID-19. But they are still urged to wear masks and social distance in public and to avoid travel. I think it's important to realize as we're as we're working through this that um, still over 90 percent of the population is not yet vaccinated and that is our responsibility to protect those who remain unvaccinated and remain vulnerable. So beginning to open the door to some sense of normalcy for people, but definitely not swinging it wide open. No, this is a first step. This should be a real incentive for people who are not vaccinated to get vaccinated. Oh boy, that's CBS News. Can I ask a question? Why get vaccinated if you still have to wear a mask and avoid travel? And it was kind of funny. The airline industry, I guess, came out and said, why are you telling vaccinated people to avoid travel? Air travel is very safe. Everybody's masked up. There's special ventilation in these airplanes. It's fine. I don't know. Again, the goalposts keep moving. The CDC guidance. Yay, you're vaccinated. You can meet with people in your house. Okay, people have been doing that anyway. This is why you don't put government at the center of your life, folks. Thanks for being with us. We have to leave it there. We'll see you next time right here on Janet Muffer Today. Mm -hmm.